We're live! Welcome to Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. I'm your host, Brandon Stone. Today's guest is JJ Jadamski. JJ, how are you? I'm good, Brandon. I'm uh, excited to be here talking with you today on Seize Your Mind. Great. It's so good to have you. I saw you talk to the Roger State men's soccer team uh, about two months ago, I think. Two and a half. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I'm uh, really, really, really touched by, by your work and was really impressed. And uh, a lot of things you said stuck with me. Um, so I'm very happy to have you on and share that knowledge of wealth with a bigger audience. I love it, man. I'm excited. Yeah, I, it was a great opportunity to go over there to Roger State and uh, talk with the team and work with, with Coach Larkin and you guys. So I'm super excited to, to again, be on Seizure Mind today and just kind of share that message with uh, people from around the country, not just here in Oklahoma. And the world. That's right. Oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I've Absolutely. got listeners all over. All over the place. That's yeah. what I'm Good. So tell me about yourself. Like, growing up, how'd you get into sports? Man, you know, it's funny. I, I, the first sport I played was soccer. I moved to Oklahoma when I was five from Illinois. And uh, I don't know how I got started in soccer, but somewhere along the way, I wanted to play soccer when I was five. I started off, I was at, in the Union Public School District and started off playing rec in Union and eventually moved into like classic and premier. Uh, I did a couple other things. I was like gymnastics for six months in like sixth grade. I ran cross, cross country in seventh and eighth and uh, played football my senior year in college. I was just a kicker because my soccer background. But most of my life from age five on, it was uh, it was all soccer um, from that point on. And for those who don't know, Union is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those, uh, it's right on the edge of, it's it's actually in Tulsa, but it's kind of funky. It's between Broken Arrow, which is a bigger city in Tulsa, and a really good school district. I was very fortunate, fortunate that's where I went to school, and it was a great experience. So what made you really fall in love with soccer? Oh, man, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I'll tell you what, um, I, I think uh, I'm just an active person, um, and I think just the, the activity that goes along with soccer, the constant kind of movement and thinking, that's what really hooked me. Uh, kind of a cool story, I actually quit playing soccer out of, out of high school. I had some chances to play in college, and I passed them up to walk walk on and be a football kicker. I only, I only kicked one year in high school, and uh, I think I, I looked at it as a challenge, and I was a little bit burned out on soccer. And um, when you talk about falling in love with it, what's cool is I, I ended up at a D2 school playing football, and a lot of my friends were on the soccer team. And I went out and played soccer one day, and literally it was the second time I'd played soccer in two years. And I remember after I played soccer that day, uh, the thought that went through my head was like, man, the world just disappears when I'm on the soccer field. And that made me really fall back in love with the sport, a sport that I'd played one time in two years. And from that moment on, I was back into soccer. I stopped stopped being a kicker, stopped playing football, and went back to soccer and uh, became a coach and coached high school and uh, in club levels. And um, man, it was just, it was kind of just refalling in love with a sport that, you know, when you're on the field, you don't think about anything else except just being in that moment and, and playing soccer. And that's really why I love the sport so much. I 100% can relate. I definitely remember there being nothing else that mattered when you're on the field. I mean, any problems you might have, even, you know, a 13 years old girl problems, whatever, nothing existed except for that ball and those goals. So I completely relate. And it's very, very hard to find something to replace that feeling. 
And isn't that the truth? That's, it, it was funny, you just mentioned that because we had, I had a discussion with, uh, he's the associate superintendent in Broken Arrow Schools right here in my community on the edge of Tulsa. And we were talking about arts and athletics and how, you know, I'm 46 and there was a point in my career where I stopped playing soccer. Maybe I played a little men's league sometimes and now I'm out of coaching. Um, but I feel like in every soccer player's career, there's a point where you kind of, you know, stop playing and that feeling you have when you're on the field with the world disappearing kind of dies with that. And uh, I was talking to this associate superintendent, he was talking about how music's a little different because really with music, you can play it probably till the day you die almost, depending on your health. And athletics, it's, it's harder to do that. So it was an interesting conversation. I never thought of art like that. I'm not an artist at all. Um, but it, it did make a lot of sense that um, that's just kind of a difference between art and athletics sometimes. Interesting. That's true. It doesn't take as much physical toll to, to play an instrument. And, uh, but there are, um, I guess there are different, different roads to get to that, that place of like Zen, I guess you would call it. Um, but yeah, soccer definitely was mine. Um, yeah, my guess is everybody listening, when, when you and I talk about the world disappearing, they can go, yep, uh, I, 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 I can relate to that feeling because they've experienced that um, because they love the game. Yes, for sure. Um, tell me about your coaching career. How did you get into coaching? Man, what's crazy is uh, there's a guy named Baylord Cox. So when I was uh, like under probably 12, Baylord was the coach of the Jinx Classic back then. It was Classic team. And he took a, a group of kids and put us together and took us to the Dallas Cup. Kind of a cool experience. Um, what's neat is we actually won it. I think we're still the only, only team in Oklahoma ever to win the Dallas Cup back in 1986. And uh, as we got older, Baylord had a son two years older than me, and he was still really involved with Jinx soccer. And I think it was when I was a junior in high school, he said, hey, we've got these little kids that um, we do soccer training with. Would you want to be kind of one of these soccer trainers? And so I don't remember how much he paid me, but I would go out there and I'd have like six little six-year-olds and I'd train them for, I don't know, 45 minutes or something. And that's honestly really how I kind of got into coaching. It just kind of gave me a taste for what it's like to work with somebody that's uh, younger and less experienced and coach them and watch them develop. And it was really cool. And I think that kind of put the, um, the taste in my mouth of what it's like to coach and give back to the game. And I really didn't do much um, once I left high school. You know, I played football a couple of years and ended up uh, at a D2 school playing soccer at Northeastern State University in Oklahoma. And uh, when I got done there, I had the opportunity to be kind of an assistant coach GA a little bit for Charlie Mitchell. I know he's been on your podcast before and I uh, got to help him out uh, about a year and a half while I was working on my master's degree there in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And uh, that, I think also that experience working with Coach Mitchell uh, at the college level was like, yes. And then I got involved with club soccer through Coach Mitchell and eventually started coaching high school. And uh, for me, I, it was really like, man, how can I give, kind of give back to the game, so to speak, and um, help other people grow as people and, and as soccer players. And so really enjoyed my time. Coaching had phenomenal players, phenomenal families I got to work with, and uh, a lot of great memories uh, from coaching soccer over my several years. Yes, uh, there, has been, there have been a lot of coaches in my past that definitely were probably more helpful in my personal life than actually on the field um, because it definitely makes an impact. It definitely you know, stays with you and relates to so many other avenues of life. So um, the soccer community thanks you for giving back and people like you. Yeah, it, it's kind of cool. I grew up playing with a guy named Steve Earle. Steve Earle um, was a, a former pro in ASL, came from England, played for Fulham in England. And there's a ton of people in the Tulsa soccer community that are familiar with Steve Earle. 
um, and, and really probably across the nation, even the world that know who he is. And uh, had a really cool moment. I had this 84 club team that um, had won state as sophomores. I got them as juniors. We got beat in state as juniors. In our senior year, we got to play in the state finals against Steve Earl. And so I was coaching against my former coach. And it was a really cool experience. We actually beat him. Um, it was a really close game. And I remember just at the trophy ceremony, I acknowledged Steve. I said, you know, what's really awesome is, is I've had a chance to coach, uh, coach this team and really share my knowledge with them. But my knowledge actually came from Steve Earl, a lot of it. And so really, um, Steve Earl was helping the team he was competing against, you know, uh, grow as players because he gave me a lot of the knowledge that I gave to those players. So pretty cool to see that legacy uh, that Steve has in the soccer community. Uh, Charlie Mitchell as well. You know, you know these guys. Alan, you know, Alan Woodward been around for a long time, right? I mean, there's a ton of those guys in the Tulsa community from the old NSL that have really left an imprint on our city. Well, the student became the master. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, man. You know, it, it was just we were pretty even matched teams, uh, and so you know we're the ones that got a goal and uh, got to go to regionals. So that's just how it worked that game that day. Nice. So tell me about the work you've been doing recently with teams. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So I've been an educator for a little over 20 years. And uh, back in about 2018, um, I was a student activities director at Broken Arrow High School. I guess probably about 2016, student activities director at Broken Arrow High School. And uh, I've always kind of done some speaking and uh, work with groups on the side. And uh, we had a student leadership retreat and a guy named Phil Boyd, uh, who's been in the speaker for 30 years, educational world, awesome man. He did our student leadership, leadership retreat and uh, he actually was talking to my boss and I was standing there and he said, hey, um, you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to steal JJ from you. And I was like, what, man? And so later that night, I said, hey, Phil, let's talk about me working for you part time. He goes, why would you do it part time if you can do it full time? And I said, dude, that is a great question. And so it just started a conversation with Phil. And he's somebody that has been around, like I said, speaking for 35 years, working with schools and groups and teams. And uh, it was just a great opportunity for me to um, to really kind of go full time into that role. So. Uh, back in 2018, I left Broken Arrow Public Schools and, and went to work for Phil as a speaker. And a lot of our work focused on um, student and staff programming in schools. We also do some work with um, business, you know, corporate stuff and some teams, athletic teams as well. And uh, that just led me over two years just to kind of be a full-time speaker and, and really facilitator. I, I don't call myself a speaker a whole lot. I do speak, but I really consider myself more a facilitator. Um, I like taking groups of people and getting them to talk with each other to get themselves to a better place. And uh, it was just a great experience over two years. And then the, uh, actually I got um, uh, back at the end of January, I got laid off our, our company from Corona, I think is what happened. We lost some business and um, it, I'm back in Broken Arrow Schools in Oklahoma, which is awesome. But I'm also kind of doing my own thing on the side now, which has been a really cool opportunity for me. I was kind of, I think I love working for Phil and his company, but I also recognize that at some point I might want to be out on my own. So now I'm um, kind of shifting that direction. I've got this um, full-time thing at Broken Arrow Schools, which is awesome, but I'm also, that allows me to do some stuff as well, work with teams of corporations and schools on um, culture for their programs. So excited about that. And while we're talking about that, how would someone get a hold of you and touch with you if they want to and bring you on? Man, honestly, the best way to get a hold of me is just to call me. I, I love talking to people on the phone, much rather, you know, if somebody sends me an email, I respond back, hey, I'd love to talk to you. Here's my number. So the best way to do that, honestly, is just call me. My number is 479-366-5843. Just give me a call or send me a text, say, hey, I'd love to chat with you. Even when I work with uh, Roger State, 
I know Coach Larkin talked with uh, Mitchell Sowerby, who's over in Oklahoma City, and uh, another coach, and he sent me a text, and it was just the same thing. Hey, man, call me when you get a chance, and let's just go from there. That's kind of the best way just to get rolling is just to have a conversation. It really allows me to learn about um, the organization that's interested in doing some work around culture. And I'm, I'm a big believer in this is a partnership. It's not, uh, it's not an event, right? So sometimes we bring in people to work or facilitate or speak at its event. I'm more a partnership person. I want it to be um, several moments and those moments create a movement within your organization. So that's my approach and it helps me understand where they're, where that, where they're at in their organization. We have a conversation, they can kind of hear my approach. We can decide if it's a, a good fit for both of us. If it is, let's, let's move forward. And if it's not, then maybe I can help them find somebody else who is a good fit. Nice, nice, I love that. I'll have that number in the uh, description down below. So if you miss That's it. awesome. I, I'm working on a website and stuff. It's just with the pandemic, there's a, not a whole lot going on in the speaking world. So I'm not in a hurry launching it. I'm kind of waiting until everything opens back up before I launch that. So. Right on. Have you been doing any like Zoom stuff? Yeah, a little bit. Um, done a couple things with school districts and um, doing a couple live things with some athletic groups here locally, um, which has been really cool. The Zoom stuff is good. It's just uh, a lot of the work I do is much better when it's in person because our goal is really to connect people within the organization with each other. Um, yesterday, I worked with a, a local high school girls basketball team and we did some connection stuff. It was actually the second time I worked with them, so it was a follow-up. So we were just trying to get them reconnected as people. And then we were trying to shift the focus. They're getting ready to start their season. And so we talked a lot about reacting and responding to things. And, you know, great example is that there's going to be somebody that gets upset about playing time really soon in their program. They're going to start playing scrimmages and some games. And, you know, what happens is you go into a game with an expectation. I usually play eight minutes. And all of a sudden that game, you play a minute and a half. And you have a reaction in your body when that happens. It's just natural because we're humans. And um, that you have the first part of that is you have to understand that that reaction is a normal response. We're just human beings. But then how do you shift from that reaction to a response? How do you respond when you only got a minute and a half instead of eight minutes? Do you get mad and go on social media and tweet about your coach, right? I only played a minute and a half. My coach sucks. Or do you approach your coach, maybe wait 24 hours, say, hey, coach, all I know I played a minute and a half yesterday. I'd love to know what I can do to earn more playing time and trust on the team. Right, that's a great question. You're not poking blame at somebody. You're trying to learn more about what you can do to gain trust and earn more playing time and be a bigger part of the team. So um, that's the between a reaction and a response. And so we talked about that with that girls basketball team yesterday. You know, when somebody you know misses a shot or has a turnover, how do you you know what's there's a reaction to that, right? But how are you going to respond as a team? Uh, we talked about Duke basketball. They always focus on next play. If you have a turnover, all the teammates yell next play. If you drain a three, they yell next play because they want you to shift your focus to the next play and not waste your energy on what just happened. And, uh, Victor Frankel talked about one of the last human freedoms is the freedom to choose your thoughts and your responses, choose how you respond to events. And that's what that reminds me of is we can either respond positively to it or we can respond negatively to it. We get to make that decision. And I love that you just quoted Victor Frankel, Brandon. The first, this is crazy stat. The first book I ever read cover to cover, I was a sophomore in college. That's embarrassing to admit because I'm an mm. educator. But the first book I've read was Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankel. And it, 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 after I read that book, it got me hooked on reading because I learned so much. I grew so much as a person from that book. So I love that quote. What was uh, the most thing that stuck with you from that book? 
I think it was just that, that we have a choice no matter your circumstance. I just remember there was a part of the book when he talked about at night um, in, in the, uh, the places they were sleeping in the concentration camp, that you could look around and you could just tell by people's face, faces if they'd given up or not. And you know, I think he talked about how those people would pass away soon after when they had lost hope. And um, that, that left a, just an impression on me of that even if you're in the worst circumstances, I remember him talking about he would have conversations with his wife about what they were having for dinner in his head when he was working at the concentration camp. And I think those things just left, a, left an impression on me of like, man, no matter where you're at in life, you still have a choice. It's to choose how your, you know, your response to the situation is always there and, and it just gave me a different outlook on life, honestly. And, and that book, uh, like I said, first book I ever read cover to cover, man, I was a sophomore in college, but uh, truly did change my life, that book. Yeah, I did a uh, grad school, one of the first papers we did was about that book. So studied it intensely and it was very powerful just to, like he had it so bad, so bad, so bad, yet he not only, you know, got over it, you know, succeeded and got out, but then he used that to create a whole movement and to change so many other people's lives from his experience. Yeah, that's pretty awesome to think about that just that book that he wrote based off his, his experience changed my life alone, you know, and, and you're talking about, you're talking about the book as well. I mean, think of uh, the impact he's had on the world. It's pretty amazing to think about. Which is a reminder for us to not be selfish with our light. We need to share, people need to hear our experiences, things that we've overcome. Um, a lot of times we get, just get so focused on ourselves and so focused in our head that we don't even realize that our story can help someone else and change their life. Yeah, that, that man, that's such a good point. Um, I, that, that's really when you think about the speaking world or facilitation world, it really is all about story. And, and uh, I think you hit on that just now. There, there's so much power in story when you hear it from people, because you can take so many things away from it. Frankel was just telling his story and what he learned from it. And there was a lot of power in that. So um, man, I 100% agree, man, that the story is so powerful. And, and honestly, that's a lot what I use in my work is it's just connecting people to other people's stories. So they can really see who people are. Um, my boss, uh, my old boss, Phil Boyd, that I mentioned earlier, he has this uh, shirt he saw a long time ago that says, it's hard to hate someone whose story you know. And I like to kind of switch the way you say that is it's really easy to like somebody once you know their story. And that's what uh, really a lot of the work I do is just getting teams to hear each other's stories so they really know who people are at their core, not just their image and what they see kind of each day on the outside. That's very important because so many times we just read a book for its cover. And, and we're, we're, I know I, I'm very quick to judge and and don't take the time to, to look into that story. So it's a good reminder. Definitely, that's in our human nature is just to uh, um, judge something by its cover very quickly, that gut instinct, absolutely. Speaking of stories, while you were talking at RSU, you did tell a story about a hummingbird. I would like to you to tell that story. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, um, this story really connects to, man, just, just now is a, a great example. There's so much going on in the world and um, you can get really lost sometimes uh, just thinking about all the stuff going on in the world. And sometimes I think uh, you just kind of got, kind of got to make life a little simpler. And, and so this story really kind of connects that for me. It's, it's kind of cool. I actually heard this story from a lady named Donna Grottle 
and Donna Grottle was the 2018 Oklahoma Teacher of the Year. She made it to the national top four or national teacher of the year. She's a phenomenal lady. And she had a class of kids. She went over to Africa and helped a um, community in Africa get fresh water and they made a pond and they can grow tilapia. So they have a protein source. And when Donna was over there working, she had one of the elders in this community tell her this story. And it's a story I like to share when I speak. Um, I think there's a lot of power in, in the story. So um, yeah, so here it is. So um, there's a, a giant fire uh, in a forest in Africa, it's just consuming the forest. And all the animals come out of the forest to try to find safety somewhere. And there's a stream across, um, uh, right by the forest that they go across for safety. They think they're safe on the other side of the stream. And they're all just standing there watching this fire consume their home, consume their forest. All except a little tiny hummingbird. This hummingbird says, I'm gonna do something about this fire. So it has these tiny little wings and little bitty beak and it flies over to that stream and picks up one drop of water with its beak flies back over to the fire and drops the drop on the fire. Flies back to the river, it's speaking river, one drop, flies back to the fire, drops it again. Just keeps doing it back and forth, back and forth. And all the other animals, they're just standing there on the river, really making fun of the hummingbird. Oh, hummingbird, your, your beak is so small and your, your wings are so tiny, you can't do anything to the fire. You've got an elephant, its trunk can hold over a gallon of water. But it's just standing there making fun of the hummingbird. The hummingbird ignores it. He just keeps flying back to the river, getting a drop of water, flying it back to the fire and dropping the drop on the water. The lion, right, the king of the jungle eventually says, hummingbird, what do you think you're doing? Hummingbird stopped, looked at the lion, he said, I'm doing the best that I can. That's it. Sometimes in life it gets crazy and we get energy drained by all these things going on. All we have to do is focus on just doing the best that we can. That's what you can control. You can control how you react to things, right? How you respond to things, really. It's about doing the best that you can. So that's the story, right? It's about, man, you just got to focus your energy on you doing your best. And at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow, if you can say, man, did I do my best today? And you can go, yeah, I did. You're going to sleep really good at night, no matter what's going on around you. You can look yourself in the mirror and not feel shame. And... That's a great way to put it, Brandon. I love that. Absolutely. Yep. You can look yourself in the mirror and not feel shame. That is a, I'm going to have to start using that line when I speak now, man, at the end of that story. That's all yours. Good... Yeah. And, and the powerful thing about that too is not only the fact that the hummingbird did that, but the fact that all his friends were just sitting there doing nothing. And we're social creatures. We do what other people do. We don't want to be judged by our peers. So for him to know he's going to look a little foolish, but still do what he thought was right and what he had power to do, takes courage. Yeah, and I think you hit on a great point there. When you think about the hummingbird, he's doing what he can control, right? I know I can go and take a drop of water and drop it. All those other animals, their energy was focused on watching their home burn. Right. So they're asking them, they're not asking the right question, right? If they ask the if they ask themselves this question of, hey, what can I do to make the situation better? They're gonna say, hey, I can go get some water and throw it on the fire too. But that, that's not the question they're asking themselves. They're probably asking themselves why. Oh, why is my home burning? Oh, because it's dry or somebody didn't take care. So instead of asking why, you ask, what can I do? Uh, there's another little phrase here that that's usually pretty good. Instead of like, um, why is this happening to me? You ask, why is this happening for me? And it's just changing one word. 
but that's a huge difference because you get a different answer. Why is it happening to me? Oh, I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough or you know, I don't have enough experience or whatever. Why is it happening for me? What's well, happening for me because it's telling me that I need to go get more experience or I need to work harder or I need to go get more knowledge or just one word change, changing that question gives you a different answer and moves you to action. That is so powerful because it goes from being the victim to being the learner. Yes, it, man, it's funny you say that, Brandon. So I had a, a college professor, Dr. Gillingham. He was a psychology professor at Northeastern State University, Oklahoma. And toward the end of one of my last classes on the board, he wrote victim versus victor, um, hunted versus hunter, and predator, or prey versus predator. I remember we came in class and it was up on the board and he said, hey, just do me a favor, take out a little sheet of paper and I just want you to write down left side or right side. Which side are you living on, the left side or the right side? I remember we all like kind of jotted down what we, what we thought. And he said, okay, I just want to see like who's, you know, talk, I think he had to talk with somebody real fast. But he said, you know, what, what side are you living on? And I'd say like three quarters of the class said we were living on the right side. We were victors, right? We were predators, we were hunters, right? And about a quarter of the class said they were living on the other side. And then he said, okay, so do you always live there? Do you always live on the predator side or the prey side? And our discussion came to no, no, in life, you bounce from side to side. Now we also talked about, we think some people live more on like the predator side and some people live more on a prey side, but you are gonna live on both sides at points in your life. And uh, it came back to that question of, why is this happening to me and why is this happening for me? And how to have, it's about kind of back to that Frankel thing. How do you have some control over that? You can control the question you ask yourself. And so it's about a, kind of establishing um, that routine in your life when things aren't going well, shifting that question uh, why is this happening for me? So you get a different answer and it moves you to action. Question control. Question control, man. Absolutely. Yes. Super important. Yeah. Love that. Love that. All right. Let's move on to, you said when you first started talking to, with the, working with this guy, Phil, um, do you remember your very first talk and what did you do to prepare for that mentally? Um, was it nerve-wracking? How did you uh, combat those nervous feelings? Um, and what from that process have you used to help others with similar circumstances? Man, that's a good question. It's kind of cool. Really, my first talk with, with Phil was um, at a school culture summit out in California. And so he holds these really like intimate two-day um, events that about 75 people go to him. With, they try to keep them really small. So it's an intense experience. And uh, I had um, in Broken Arrow, they hired me to be the student activities director in 2013. At the time, the student life of Broken Arrow was pretty much dead. So when I said it was pretty much dead, my first year in Broken Arrow, the last home football game, we're the largest high school in the state of Oklahoma. We have 3,800 kids in three grades, 10, 11, 12. We had 28 students at our last home football game. At our homecoming dance my first year, we had 100 kids go to our homecoming dance. And I, um, and I came from a school in, our, in Arkansas. I was over in Bentonville, Arkansas for a while. We had 1,600 kids go to homecoming dance. So I went from that to 100. Man, it was rough. So we were just in a really bad place. And I was able to turn that around. So over several years, we got to turn that student culture around. Um, right when I left, we were the nation's most spirited high school in 2017. We won a $25,000 reward from Varsity Brands. They're like a cheerleading school spirit company. Uh, we have 300 kids in leadership now at Broken Arrow High School with like over 10 classes of leadership kids. Homecoming, you'll have, you know, 1,600, 1,700 kids. We have all these activities. 
different things kids can participate in now. So we really shifted the culture. And so uh, I, I got a lot of attention for that, I guess is how I would say it. A lot of people in the, in the school world started to recognize like, dude, what are they doing in BA? And people would call me. Um, and so Phil had me talk about that. Excuse me. So Phil, the, you know, my goal in that school culture summit was come and tell people what you did in Broken Arrow and how you turned that school culture around. So fortunate for me, I was going to speak about something that I was incredibly familiar with, right? It was just naturally for me, natural for me to speak about it because honestly, I'd told so many people about what I had done because I had inquiries that it was very natural for me to speak about it. So I was lucky that I was speaking about something that was really in my comfort zone. Um, so I got really lucky there. Probably the one that stretched me the most though um, was uh, we do a program uh, through Phil called Breaking Down the Walls. So it's 200 kids in a gym for six hours, 200 high school kids in a gym for six hours. The goal is that when you um, walk out of the gym, kids recognize they have a lot more in common than they do different. You're trying to break down the walls between. And uh, I went up to Seattle. My, my first training was a guy named Dean Wellums. And Dean Wellums is a phenomenal person. If you wanna, if you wanna go look up somebody who is just phenomenal at working with sports teams, Dean Wellums, Team Elite Performance. This man is a complete stud. And uh, Dean, uh, was my kind of coach for this Breaking Down the Walls program. And uh, it's supposed to be in a gym, 200 kids. Well, the, the school I got trained at, they were having some issues. And it was up in Seattle. And they moved us into a church down the street. And instead of having 200 kids, there was 100 kids. But the room, when you think about a gym, a normal gym, it's the size of a basketball court, usually plus some stuff on the side where the, the bleachers go in and out. So, you know, maybe one and a half basketball courts plus some stands to sit in. We walked into this church and the room was about the half the size of a basketball court with a hundred kids in it. So already the facility is not really good. And unfortunately the school we were in was having some really, um, you know, pretty bad staff issues. They had replaced their principal and all their assistant principals. They had a bunch of staff turnover and really they, they didn't have the staff bought into what was going on. So, my first experience was watching Dean do an opening speech for 20 minutes and there were kids in the, in the audience turning around with their back to Dean, talking to each other and not one staff member at the school corrected them. And I remember standing at the back going, what did I sign myself up for? I'm going to be working six hours with a group of kids that could care less if you're even talking. And um, what I found out though, was that was like one of the worst experiences Dean had ever had in like 10 years of doing the program. It was just an unlucky um, <laughs> unlucky combination of factors, but halfway through that week, I took over and did some of the programming at the end of the week, I did a whole day. And so that really pushed me to grow because the longest I'd really facilitated something to that point was probably 90 minutes. So I went from facilitating something for 90 minutes to six hours, which is a big shift and takes a lot of energy. And I really grew. So I did a training week with Dean. I did another like little couple days with Dean and then they, they put me out on my own and I was doing six hours by myself. Um, I know it's because they they had confidence in me. I'd shown that I could do it, but it did force me to really grow. And uh, a bunch of little things, just like in soccer, there's not one thing that can make you a great soccer player. There's a hundred little things you add up. Same thing as a speaker. There's not like one thing that can make you a great speaker necessarily, but if you do a hundred little things really well, it really can make you an effective facilitator. So I learned a lot of those things from Dean and Phil. Um, the first, uh, you know, two, three weeks I went and facilitated with them. They, they coached me really well. So I have a lot of appreciation for those guys. That's a great example of what you're talking about. What question do I ask myself? Because you are seeing that the fact that you were at this church instead of the gym, like you were getting eight minutes of playing time versus now getting one and a half 
you were picturing going to have that huge gym and you got put in that church and you wouldn't have grown and stretched yourself and learned had you been in a regular gym as much as the other. So it actually ended up being something good that at the time you were seeing as something negative that had you have switched before, you know, after you realize it, but in the moment, if you would have switched it right there, you would have, you know, caught on to that quicker. That makes sense. Absolutely. And what, what's, what's really cool about it is Dean, this guy that's, um, you know, trained me, it, it, it's like it didn't even phase the man. I mean, he just went, he went through the day like it was normal. And, and me, I don't know any different, right? I know we're supposed to be in a gym in a bigger space, but I, I don't really know what this means. I don't know if he's ever been in this place before. And at the end of the day, I start learning all this stuff. Like, cause it, in my gut, I started going like, that just, that seemed weird. And like the kids weren't as like engaged as I thought. And, you know, and, and then I realized that this is the one, like he, I think he told me that's the second worst day he's ever had in like 10 years of doing the program. And I'm like, whoa, man. But that's when it really hit me at the end of the day. And, and he was just, he, it did not rattle that man. He just hopped in and did his thing. But that really helped me understand like, hey, when I show up someplace, because every school is different. Some schools are incredibly organized. Some teams are incredibly organized. Some businesses are incredibly organized, but some are not. And so when you show up and things aren't perfect, and you just got to hop in and, and go with the flow. No joke. I went out to North Carolina, this brand new, this is when I, uh, uh, Phil, uh, when I was working with Phil, a school that um, I was doing a PD day with a brand new elementary charter school. So this was a brand new school that hadn't even opened its doors yet. It's the first day this staff had ever gathered and they were bringing us in to do some relationship building to make them into a team. And we were supposed to start at 8.30. I get there, I usually get there 30, 45 minutes early. I got there at 7.55, so I'm 35 minutes early. I walk in the door and every teacher is sitting at their seat with the principal in front of them. And they, they are just so excited to start. They're there 30 minutes early. So I walk in and I'm like, what runs through my head is, oh my gosh, I'm late. It starts at eight. And I, I quickly looked at my little schedule and it's like, no, 8.30. And so I look up and the principal was like, and so I said, hey, just give me a second to set my stuff down. And I walked up there and she was like, well, JJ, if you're ready to start, we're ready to start. And I was like, okay. So I just hopped in and started doing this, you know, doing our stuff. And I mean, it worked out great. But man, I think seeing Dean model, like when things aren't perfect, you don't, you just keep going and do your thing that it, it's going to work out. And it did, man, that day was phenomenal with that school. And I could have let it really rattle me. Um, but I think I'd seen that modeled from Dean and Phil before that things aren't going to be perfect, but you just, you know, kind of stick with your plan and keep moving forward and you'll make it work well. And that, that's what I've learned from those guys. Man, how many times in soccer as a coach have you had this plan You go in, you get two nils scored on you in the first five minutes and you have to keep it cool and not get rattled. Man, that, that's <laughs> – that's a perfect uh, like analogy there because that happens all the time, right? You have a plan, you have this thing going, and you you just gotta get you just gotta get it done, right? It's one of those things you're like can't get rattled, can't can't focus all your energy on being too down. You gotta go, hey, what are we gonna do? How, what, what what change are we gonna make to um, get some momentum and get back going the other way? That's just that's the approach you have to take. So um, now that's a great analogy, man, and that's why that's always so dangerous, right? Two nothing because if somebody gets a goal on you, then all of a sudden you start going, uh oh, man, it's two one, right? And you get it to two, it's a different situation. Absolutely. But yeah, I love what you just said. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it, 
And I think to um, looking back now that you mentioned that, I think I was like that as a coach, honestly, like I, I had lunch yesterday with the associate super broken arrow and uh, he's a former soccer coach, Chuck Perry, talking about an amazing man. This guy's just an amazing guy. And uh, he, uh, I got hired as the high school coach at Union High School. I was at Broken Arrow and went to Union. And uh, we're actually playing in the state semifinals against a really good Norman North team. And Chuck talked about this yesterday. We actually got down 2 nothing, And uh, they played a flat back four really well. And they'd get the ball out wide. And we were struggling. And I just I switched up the formation, man. I was like, we've got to put pressure on them. And uh, we switched it up and we got a goal, got back in the game and ended up tying it, one in a shootout. And Chuck was like, man, that it was funny because it's literally a conversation we had yesterday um, just about that change. So I was actually kind of like that as a coach already. Just like, man, I can't, I can't, I mean, one of the goals we gave up was this ball that came in. We had this goalie that was 6'6", awesome goalie, Bill Martin. And I remember this ball came in off a cross and, and we were playing at turf at Jinx in the semifinals, like at a local high school. And he like kind of dove and it took like this funny bounce over his leg and went in. It was just a weak goal. And that made it two nothing. The first goal was this bomb, this kid ball, dropped the volley that was just phenomenal. Now I remember you go down on a, a kind of a jump goal to nothing people, you know, it's that react and respond thing, right? Your reaction to your gut, your shoulders go like this, right? And your body, the, the energy drains from you when you give up a really weak goal like that. But what's our response going to be? Okay. So how are we, what are we going to do to now respond to this, right? We've got to add some energy back in and get some momentum and stuff. So we changed the formation and, and started attacking, man. So, and it worked. Is that okay? What do you say to your players at that moment to get their shoulders back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, what's funny is I, I Eric Marshall, uh, who's now the coach at uh, a very successful high school coach here in Oklahoma at Jinx High School, and, uh, he, he was my assistant coach and he's just this guy I've known. So we grew up playing soccer against each other. He played at Duke. He's a phenomenal guy. And uh, I remember I walked over to Marshall. We had this conversation about what to do. And it was like, look, we, we, we've got to show our dudes that we're still in this domain, I think was like our mentality. And then what do we, how, what, how are we going to react to this? Right? Like we had a reaction. How are we going to respond to this now being down to nothing? Um, because you could tell the reaction was the slump shoulders and the low energy right? But we have to do something to respond mentally. Like what is our intentional, um, uh, our intentional response going to be in that? Hey, switch the formation. Let's put pressure on them. And it was, we were like, that's what, that was our message. I remember was like, Hey, let's put pressure on them. Let's pressure, let's pressure, right? Let's, let's, let's go. Um, because before that they'd keep the ball at the back forever and spread it out and knock it around. And we weren't doing a good job of pressuring them. So, um, we got two goals. They weren't pretty, but they counted. <laughs> It was honestly from the pressure, I think, of switching it up and putting uh, putting some some guys in different spots and um, just trying to get after it. I recently watched an interview with Jose Mourinho, and he was talking about it was a game where the other team usually played in this formation, except when they were down a goal, they would switch it up to like three at the front or something like that. And he said all week they practiced as if the other team had three in the front. And the, the teammates were going, what are we doing? Like, they play with two up front. He's like, yeah, I'm getting ready for whenever we're already one up. That's pretty awesome, man. Like, just things like that that send a message, like putting pressure on, on them when you're down two. Like, those things are awesome to me. Yeah, there's a phrase I love when I, when I speak or facilitate that everything counts because everything communicates. 
I love that phrase. I'll say it again. Everything counts because everything communicates. And um, it, 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 there's a billion examples of that in the world. I'll, I'll use one the other day from the sports world. Um, I was uh, in, a, in a facility with a high school football team. And because of coronavirus, right, they only have like one door in and they're checking all the players and stuff like this. And uh, I'm watching the coaching staff. And there's about eight of them at the door. And they're very casual. I'll, I'll use that term. They were just very casual and low energy. So, Brandon, if you're a player that walks in, most of the coaches are talking in a huddle with each other very casually. One guy's taking your temperature and you just walk off on past them. And I was watching that opportunity going, man, I feel like those coaches are missing an opportunity to add energy to the room, right? If there's eight of you standing around, that because that communicates something to me. If I'm a player and I walk through the door and just one coach gives my temperature and no one says anything to me, that communicates something to me. As if, if, you, if you're Brandon, you walk through the door and I'm there and I'm like, Brandon, what's up, man? Get your temperature. And all the other seven coaches are like, Brandon, what's up, man? How you doing? You feeling good today? You got energy today? That communicates something. Everything counts because everything communicates. Whether it's intentional or not, you're still communicating it. So those, those things matter, man. My buddy Dean, I mentioned earlier, he has this phrase, and I'll share it with you. It's Those are simple things, but they're not little things. When you think about the culture of a program and just that example of the football coach standing at the door, that's a simple thing, how you greet people, but it's not a little thing at the same time. Those things add up to make your program good or great. True, true. And um, so much about programs like teams is about relationships and building those relationships. And that kind of sets a precedent for, you know, how that rest of that practice is going to go, how the rest of the season is going to go. Like, it's so important. Um, yeah. Oh, man. And that you hit you, the magic word for, for what you just said is relationships. A lot of the, the work I think I mentioned earlier is, is I focus on relationships. Um, when you think of a locker room, I mean, when I was playing in college my senior year, Coach Mitchell, Charlie Mitchell bought in, I don't know, like 10 or 12 freshmen, something like that. I mean, there are kids that, um, you know, even to today, you can say, what do you know about, you know, this guy? I can say, I can tell you his name and what town he was from. That's it. That's all I can tell you about the guy. And he played minutes on our team as a freshman. And I can tell you his name and the town he's from. That's it. So what did I know about that guy? Nothing. What do you know about me? Probably nothing. Knew I was a senior. That's it. But yet we're on the same team trying to accomplish this goal together, but I barely even know the guy. So how much better is your group team organization going to be if you get to a place where you really know who people are? So the phrase, that relationships, that's the foundation. That builds trust. When you have relationships with people, that's a big component of building trust. And then when you have trust, that leads to a place of emotional commitment. A lot of people use the word engagement. I like to say emotional commitment. If you have strong relationships and trust, you can be emotionally committed to this goal as a team. When you have great teams, and you, you and I have been around these, you've, you have got teams with a lot of talent sometimes that maybe not great relationships and trust and they're not engaged with each other on what they're trying to achieve, so they don't achieve it. We've also been around groups and teams that have maybe not as much talent, but they have really strong relationships and a ton of trust. And that team is going to be successful because they're engaged. They're emotionally committed to what they're trying to do together. And honestly, I feel like the, the more I've worked with teams and groups and schools, I recognize the successful ones. It's, it's really not magic. Okay. It's if you can get a group of people super connected to each other and trusting and engaged with what you're trying to achieve, 
you're going to be successful. And if you don't have that real strong relationships and trust, it's really hard to be successful. What is one trick or tip or not magic pill, but what's the one thing a team can do when they're about to have an influx of say six new players? Um, what's your prescription doc? Oh man, I, I love that question. Brandon. I'll use a, a school, an analogy of a school. So um, a lot of schools, I call it giving the finger. So let's say, Brandon, you just moved in. You moved into Broken Arrow, Oklahoma from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, right? You show up and you come in. We look at your transcript. We make you a schedule. We hand you a piece of paper, and I call it giving the finger. We point and say, hey, Brandon, your first class is right over there, right? And we send you on your way. Think about that. You're a kid that just moved from Cincinnati, Ohio, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And what did we do? We hand you a piece of paper and tell you, go to class, man. That's not helping you or us honestly be successful. So what if this, what if this happens on a campus? What if, if you're a new kid from Cincinnati, Ohio, you come in, you start working on your schedule and I say, hey, Brandon, I'm gonna go get you a leadership student to walk you around the school for a little bit. Well, we get a leadership student. They give you a tour of campus real fast. They take you to a place where they kind of flip you through the yearbook for 10 minutes and say, hey, Brandon, here's some of the traditions we have at our school, right? Homecoming's a big deal. This gym night thing's a big deal. We love going to the band concert. Our band's nationally recognized that, so we're teaching you about the school. What if we had a couple phrases that we always use, like maybe be your best is one of them. So on our campus, we focus on being our best. That's it. So what does that mean? What does that mean in a hallway? What does that mean in a classroom? What's that mean in a commons area? What does that mean in town? Just be your best. That's it. So you have to be really intentional about onboarding people. And then from the start, they're going to feel more part of your community. Same thing on a soccer team or a basketball team or a football team. You're bringing in kids, and I know how the soccer world works. We get kids from all over the world. We get kids from Scotland. We get kids from Africa. We get kids from the Caribbean, South America, wherever. You're bringing people from literally different cultures from all over the world, and your goal is to bring them together. So if you're bringing in six new people, what, what are some things you can do to be super intentional? I would structure it to where you have the same, some kind of similar process every year. I would have some of your older players individually kind of meet with those guys on the front end walk them around campus, talk about the program, take them by the trophy case, talk about what are the kind of guiding principles you use as a program. Maybe it's be your best or better together or whatever it is. Say, this is how we do things here. Those are the guys, your older players are the ones that should be talking about, hey, when we go on an away game and we're done as a team, we make sure we leave our place better than we found it. We pick up all our trash, all our tape, all our ice bags. We make sure we throw it away. That's how we operate here at our school. So to me, you want your older players. So I think there's a lot more power in that. And I'll tell you why I think there's more power in that. As a coach, if I go teach those things, kids go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the coach telling me. But if you have a player teach another player that stuff, it's powerful for two reasons. Number one, they're hearing it from a peer, somebody that's on the field with them. And number two, your older player is going to have more ownership of your program because they're investing back into the next generation of players coming through. And so that helps you build a little bit more of a legacy and um, kind of how people affected the program, not only on the field, but even off the field. So it's just about intentionally building some sort of orientation program on the front end. And then the second thing is, how do you take these six new guys and put them in a group of 30? To me, it's about being intentional to build in time, investing time into relationship building. So that is letting people talk one-on-one, -on -one. like Brandon, you saw some of the work I do. It's just you know, a one minute conversation, me talking for 30 seconds, you talking for 30 seconds about a topic that you get to know people. And over two weeks, if you invest time over two weeks doing that, after two weeks, you just need to spend about 20 to 30 minutes a week maintaining that relationship. That's it. 
I mean, when I look back, when I played in college, you know, I talked to my little group of friends out of the group of 30, right? So did everybody else on the team. Like I said, I knew a couple of dudes' names and where they're from, and that's it. But how much stronger would our team and our bond would have been if I really knew about, you know, a kid named Gabe from El Paso. If I really knew about Gabe and his family and details about him from El Paso, what motivates him, what he's passionate about, right? He knew those things about me. We're going to be more connected and hopefully emotionally committed to our goal as a team. So come up with a system where the first two weeks you guys are together, you're investing a lot of time in truly building relationship. And I think what's important here is, is relationships take time, number one. And number two, it takes conversation and experiences. So what conversation and experiences can you have where people are really sharing with each other and really seeing into each other, not just, I know your name and what town you're from, but hearing their hopes, dreams, fears, when you talk about hopes, dreams, fears, that's a deeper level relationship. When I think about my wife, we talk about hopes, dreams, fears. I don't talk about those things so much with you know, the people I work with. I know their kids' names, but I don't know what their dreams are, their goals are, their fears are. That's a different debt level of relationship. But if you can get there as a team and group, that's a very powerful. Beautiful, beautiful. Love that. That's definitely a lower layer. Um, you know, not just something superficial. I think uh, being intentional about that can definitely fuse those bonds deeper and, and stronger. Um, and even with, you know, friends you have now, like with, with me, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily just have to be with soccer team, just keeping that in the back of your mind. Because how many times do we talk to someone and never go deeper? Yeah, and I learned that, honestly, I learned a lot of that from Phil, Phil Boyd, the guy I mentioned earlier. Um, he's just really great at um, making relationships deeper, going deeper with relationships. And even just when you sit around the dinner table, you know, what do we talk about with my kids every night? I have, I have 10-year-old twins, my wife and I, how was your school day? You know, those are the questions we ask. But we've gotten better about asking stuff about, hey, what are the things you dream about doing right now? You know, if you could do anything, what would you, if you could go on a vacation anywhere, where would you go and why? Who would you take with you? You know, asking questions like that are pretty cool. What are the things that scare you right now that are making you nervous right now, um, that stress you out right now? Um, those are good questions to ask because you're going a little bit deeper uh, into who they are as people and understanding them better. So that's a good thing. I'll be more intentional about doing that with, with, with all my peers and acquaintances. Um, I think that's a great place for us to, to wrap up the conversation. Um, I think this has went wonderfully well. I've learned a ton. I've felt like it's been 10 minutes, but apparently it's been a lot longer than that. Yeah, man, that's good. Um, so I just want to say thanks for thanks for being on. I, I'm glad to have you on. Hopefully I'll have you on again in the future. Good luck with, with your future speaking. Hopefully things get back to normal soon. And Stay in touch. Awesome. No, hey, Brandon, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. I, I, I love them. I get to be a part of it, man. I've got all sorts of people on there, so I'm glad I get to be a piece of that puzzle. That's super cool, man. I appreciate it. Well, have a, have a good rest of your week. It's almost over, um, and I'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thanks, Brandon, man. Have a good day. Thanks, JJ. See ya.